Hey, this is Mark A. Altman. And if you're a fan of this podcast, you already know the 50-year mission is definitive oral history of Star Trek. And Secrets of the Force will tell you everything you want to know about the history of Star Wars. But what you probably don't know is Ed Gross and I have a new book coming out this July. They shouldn't have killed this dog. The complete uncensored ass-kicking oral history of John Wick, Gun Fu, and the new age of action. Coming from St. Martin's in hardcover, digital, and audio. You can order it today. Hey, this is Mark A. Altman. This is Darren Doctorman, and we are the Inglorious Trexperts. Yeah, I thought it was a classic femme fatale. Just so much fun. I like that Shakespearean lace in your acting. I said, Gene, what do you want from this character? I want you to just take the character and make it your own. <laughs> <laughs> I had a good time on the film. On day one, the movie was already $15 million over budget. We started this movie without an ending. That's like painting yourself into a corner. I don't think we've ever had a Star Trek oh, captain on our show. True. Being, as you said, number one of the, on the call sheet, it is a producer's position if you're going to take it seriously. I was so glad they didn't cast me as Lorca. <laughs> <laughs> you famously wrote that script in 12 days. One level, I wrote the script. And on another level, the story was written by everybody and sure. his brother. New episodes every Saturday, wherever you listen to podcasts, or download the Electric Now app. Keep on trekking. Ingloriously, of course. Inglorious Trexperts, the only podcast for fans with a life, is available every Friday, wherever you listen to podcasts, and on the free Electric Now app. Download it today. Hello and welcome to Best Movies Never Made, a podcast where we talk about interesting and infamous movies that never made it to or through production. Most of the time, the movies you're trying to make don't get made. But like four of them may happen, one of them may happen, none of them may yeah. happen, and I'll be attached to three more things by end of summer. Turn the script into something resembling like Unforgiven with Conan. Yeah. Suddenly the rights expired and the whole thing just like went away oh. overnight. New episodes will be available every other Monday. We won't see you at the movies. Best Movies Never Made, as featured in Entertainment Weekly, is available wherever you listen to podcasts and on the free Electric Now app. This is the 430 movie season finale. I'm Mark Altman, and welcome to Party Like It's 1982 Week. Woo! <laughs> I am yeah. so excited for this one. So well, excited. I think I'm not excited. I think in 1982, I still had a curfew. So <laughs> I'm not excited that it's our season finale no. because I just love being around you guys and talking movies, but uh, we'll do it again real soon. We're at Planet 10 real things, soon. All good things must come to an end. And we'll be back soon, sooner than you know. Yeah. And speaking of <laughs> us, let me explain to you, in case you've been living in a cave, who we are. <laughs> On Monday, it's writer for such shows as The Clone Wars, Star Wars Rebels, X-Men, the animated series. It's none other than the myth, the legend, <laughs> rarely seen in the wild, Stephen Melching. <laughs> I am ready to get back in time, baby. On Tuesday, his first film was probably his best citizen Kane. No, wait, sorry. <laughs> this, on Tuesday, the concept designer for such great movies uh, <laughs> as master and commander Riddick TV shows like Westworld and Star Trek Picard. It's none other than the great Darren R. Doctorman. 82, 82, 82. 
I love the 80s. <laughs> and on Wednesday, you know him as the showrunner of Dota Dragon's Blood. New season debuts in August. So check it out on Netflix. And of course, he also wrote X-Men First Class, Thor, and uh, was a writer and producer on Black Sails, Fringe, Terminator, The Sarah Connor Chronicles, and uh, many more fine shows. It's Ashley Edward Miller. 82, Brute? Ooh. <laughs> That's all I've got. Wow. And last, I have no pithy commentary. <laughs> last but not least, it's me. It's Mark A. Altman. And have I got a treat for you? There's a reason we're doing 1982. It's not only the 40th anniversary, but I got an exciting documentary coming out uh, about the films of 1982. And at the end, if you make it to the end of this podcast, we'll have a very special sneak preview. So if you missed our panel at Comic-Con where we preview 1982, uh, greatest geek year ever, you can listen to this wonder, although there's no subtitles on audio. So it's like, you'll be like, who's talking? I don't know. <laughs> but anyway, we're going to have a little clip for you. But uh, just uh, very excited. We just got into our first film festival like uh, in competition. I can't announce who it is, but it's very exciting. And um, it's, it really make, was a real labor of love. Make sure you listen to the whole podcast before skimming to the trailer. That's right. Right. That's Don't right. Just Don't skip to it now. No skipping. We'll know. Listen. Yeah. It, exa- it wouldn't exactly. be a trailer if you didn't wait to the end because yeah. it trails the show. That's exactly. Right. Good point. The long, long trailer. <laughs> Good point. And I have to say, you know, the initial funding for um, the documentary came from Kickstarter. So many of you, so many of you who listen to 430 Movies supported it, my fellow hosts. So I, I'm deeply indebted to you. This thing would have never happened if, if we hadn't, um, you know, got the seed money from um, the Kickstarter promotion, uh, the backers. So uh, uh, thank you very much for that and uh, all your support. It, like I said, it was truly a, a labor of love for everybody involved. And, and we're going to talk about that. Why 1982 is such a special year. And I have to say, obviously, we're going to we don't want to talk about the movies yet um, because uh, that's to come as we curate our fantasy theme week. But it, it was the nexus for so much that was going on in pop culture that continues to endure to this day. I mean, it, w- it wasn't the year that Kate Bush's uh, Running Up That Hill came out, but <laughs> some of the songs are so iconic and well-known. Thriller came out that year, but so did, you know, if, if, if Michael Jackson was the Beatles, then the Rolling Stones was Prince. 1999 came out that year. Duran Duran's Rio, Nebraska from Bruce Springsteen, Roxy Music's Avalon, Imperial Bedroom from Elvis Costello, <laughs> Combat Rock from The Clash, Toto 4. This Damn was their right. last album before the incredible soundtrack to Dune in 84. <laughs> and I'm laughing, but I do think it's an incredible soundtrack. The Nylon Curtain from, from Billy Joel, Joe Jackson's Night and Day. I mean, Pictures 11 from Robert Plant. I mean, the list goes well, on and you're on. You're stealing some thunder from the 430 vinyl. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what the number one single was in 1982? It's not what you think it was. It was, uh, it was Eye of the Tiger, wasn't it? No, that was number two. It was oh, Olivia Newton-John. Oh, physical. physical. Wow. Let's get physical. Let yeah. me hear your body talk. And number three was I Love Rock I love- and Roll. Joan, yeah. We also Joan had what, Come On Eileen. We had Centerfold. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah can you imagine Centerfold coming out today? <laughs> I'm having flashbacks, guys, to being 11. Painted <laughs> Love. Well, and of course, I mean, it's so funny because uh, Jenny, you know, 867-5309 from Tommy Two-Tone came out that year. Talk about an enduring 
song. I mean, Tommy Tunehone was not a one-hit wonder, but boy, you know, he's certainly well known for that. And then you I had you know, always, the- I would always remember Jenny's phone number. You know, <laughs> uh, somebody that I know uh, has a number that's very close to that. And the way they told me to remember the number was to remember eight six seven five three or nine. I said, "Oh, that's a great idea. That's so smart." Except then I needed to call them. And all that would go through my head was eight six seven five three zero nine, which is not the correct number. That's uh, that's funny, but uh, you know, one of the first supergroups, Asia, came in with "Heat of the Moment," which was a huge song back in the eighties. Now nobody remembers Asia. I can't but, wait uh, until Mark Rivera cuts in. Just song after song. He won't. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm excited. Mark Rivera is coming to uh, to down to Comic Con. We're going to meet him for the first time. Yeah, that's crazy. Exciting. Yeah, uh, and and that's great. Um. So uh, we'll see so if he lot- edits. We'll see if he edits us in person the way he edits us. Oh, <laughs> God, I could use one. We know. Well, <laughs> <laughs> what is, Steve, tell us about some of the highlights in 1982. Well, of course, the president of the United States was Ronald Reagan. He was in his uh, second year. Uh, it was uh, it was a rough time. We were just kind of coming out of the the uh, so-called malaise of the late 70s. Uh, we were in an economic recession. Uh, 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 Argentina had invaded the Falkland Islands. We had the Falkland Islands War that year. Uh, uh, we had the Tylenol poisonings, which is why all our medicines have little uh, foil caps on them. Uh, it was the year that the Epcot Center opened in Florida. Uh, it was the year USA Today started publishing uh, for the first time, the first national daily newspaper. Uh, it was the year that Late Night with David Letterman premiered, one of my personal favorite uh, late night show uh, of all time. Uh, gosh, it was the year of the first artificial heart transplant, the Jarvik artificial heart. You picked the heart. <laughs> Uh, you're forgetting you're forgetting my favorite ciabatta bread was invented that year <laughs> and, and, i didn't and, know that and it was a tragic year for ashley because two of his heroes victor bono and paul lynn both died that year yeah very sad well but born that year was the future king of england prince william uh, uh graceland open to the public uh, for tours elvis presley's uh, home uh it was this is something i learned recently that was apparently the year the first emoticon, the smiley, uh, was introduced. Uh, really? Uh, How strange. Probably over Musenet or some random crap like that. Well, yeah. and actually, in all seriousness, uh, Ashley, Phil K. Dick died and Ayn Rand died that year. That's right. And Jim Belushi and Ingrid Bergman. It really was the passing of the torch. Well, not John, not, John Belushi. Jim Belushi. Wishful thinking. John Belushi, of course. This is like one of those cool sci-fi stories where like Jim Belushi goes back in time and takes his brother's place and dies. And his brother like <laughs> moves forward happy, pretending to be somebody else. And he gets his, no. He, here's a question for people not named Steve. Does anybody know what Times Man of the Year was in 1982? Mm-hmm. Uh, was it what the, times, man? Hmm. Not who, but what? Well, I know. Times, I know was I know it Mr. Popeil? I know who it is. So if Ron Popeil, no. <laughs> Mr. Popeil. Uh, I, I forget. Who, who, well, who the is computer. it? The computer. The computer. The computer. The computer. The computer. Oh, that's right. computer. That's right. Yeah. And, and it's funny because that was also the year the Commodore 64 came out. Speaking of computers. 
And, and, the, and the, the Commodores had the Vic- like a bunch of hits. <laughs> yeah, like the Vic 20. <laughs> and, 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 you know, the, the average monthly rent in 1982 was $320. Oh my God. A gallon wow. of gas was 91 cents. Uh, a, a new house cost $82,000. Median, a 19 inch color television cost. Four hundred and ninety nine dollars. Wow. Well, you know, okay, I would boomer. hop in. Uh, I would hop into DeLorean and go back in time. But unfortunately, John DeLorean was arrested for selling cocaine <laughs> that year. I have to tell you, a 19 inch television for four hundred dollars is mind bogglingly expensive. Considering oh, no that kidding. now you can get 43 inch smart TV flat screen for like two hundred bucks. But yeah, you know, my first VCR I'd, I'd was gladly, like nine hundred dollars. I gladly pay that. And be able to buy a house for eighty thousand dollars. Oh yeah! Oh, oh, hell yeah! <laughs> hell yeah! But it's just interesting how like how technology like how it's how it's right. you you adjust that four hundred ninety nine dollars for inflation. Oh, That's what god. almost two grand for a yeah. nineteen inch CRT screen. Oh <laughs> my god! That like even at nineteen inches, it weighs like a hundred thousand pounds. Like you <laughs> kill a man with it. So I want to exercise. I want to ask you guys. In nineteen eighty two, did you know why nineteen eighty two? This week, besides the fact I have a documentary coming out about the year, but why was 1982 so special as a movie year and and as and to, to all of you in terms of being this sort of seminal year for for movies? That's interesting. I I'm gonna take I'm gonna just take a a talking guess and uh, and say that the the 70s didn't end until the end of 1981. Uh, that the transition from our, you know, national zeitgeist uh, didn't happen until after the uh, election of the president, after a lot of things had sort of settled down, after uh, uh, the, uh, uh, like Steve said, the malaise and the uh, inflation of uh, the time uh, had uh, uh, evened out a little bit. Well, we had, I mean, John Lennon had been assassinated in 1980. We had the hostage crisis yeah. in 1980-81. It was a lot of bummers. A lot of bummers to get over, and and I, I think that uh, specifically in the movie business, I think that uh, the fruits that uh, were uh, able to be picked in 1982 uh, had started to be grown in like maybe 1979, 1980, um, and that it was it was the result of the uh, sort of the blockbuster uh, frenzy that happened in the late 70s. Uh, and I think it, it took the industry that amount of time to sort of change their change their uh, uh, attitude and change their direction. And I think that is part of it. Yeah. What about you? Ash? Cer- certainly with ge- certainly with genre films. Absolutely. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, just, even like I think in, in films in general, because the the thing that was um, that was that was happening that was different was it was we were in this weird place where. We were we were trying to kind of capture popularity, right? Like lightning in a bottle. Nobody knew what worked, like at all. Nobody knew what worked and what was going to hit. As proven by the black hole, right? (laughs) But there was still a a a a propensity in Hollywood to kind of let the creators create, let the people who are making the films make the films. And because of that, if you look at 1982 and what came out that was just really just kicked us in the ass, I mean, for the most part, we're not really, I mean, there's a very obvious sequel uh, in that 
in that list. But for the most part, we're not really talking about sequels. We're talking about originals. We're talking about very different things that in their own ways really um, uh, broke, broke down boundaries of, um, of what films could be in particular genres. So there was a weird indie sensibility that was happening. And I think this was just before all the marketing slobs came in from the Ivy League and ruined it, it for everybody. Just at, it was just at the beginning of the corporate takeover of Hollywood. Yeah. They were still willing to roll the dice a lot and, and the infrastructure was in place to realize these kind of larger than life, you know, visual effects, uh, heavy films that, uh, that audiences were really into, you know, yeah, well, willing to see. made, uh, you know, executives made decisions based on instinct and not on algorithms. And that's why you had companies like, you know, obviously the great United Artists heyday of the 70s, but then all those guys went over and started Ryan. But, you know, all the studios were taking chances because Star Wars had opened the door for genre, but they didn't quite know how to capture that again. <laughs> they didn't understand it. They didn't understand what it was that tapped into the zeitgeist. So they were trying all kinds of stuff. And, it, it, you know, you could argue that 1939 which was, you know, widely considered the greatest year for movies ever, is a better year pound for pound. But th this is such a really interesting year of movies uh, in terms of how diverse they are, in terms of how nuts some of them are, then how some great, how many, and there are a bunch of masterpieces as well. So, um, and we'll talk about that. And in fact, to make room for all the great movies of 1982, and the fact that this is our season finale, we're going to program a whole week, not five days. We're going seven days, the whole right. week. <laughs> and we're only going to barely touch on the goodness that was 1982. But we, didn't know. we even, don't know back then. We're not even taking a day to rest. That's we're not right. even like, taking so, a day to like, rest. So even look at us. God would only do six days out of the week. Yeah. But not us. We're going the full seven. And uh, <laughs> But, you know, we didn't Sorry, know that Chewbacca bread had gluten in it back then. So uh, what do we know? What do we know? Oh my, then? Chewbacca. <laughs> <laughs> well, and you know, what's interesting is addition to, to all this, remember, this is the very beginning of the home video era. This was the year that two films from Paramount that came out that year premiered on home video for affordable prices, popular prices at $39.95. It, it was, had been a whole rental Market only, so and a lot of films didn't even come out of it. So the same year that these movies came out, Star Wars was re-released, Raiders of the Lost Ark was re-released, you know, Empire was. Re I mean, so you're the way that you would see these films that you had loved to see them again wasn't at home. It was by going to the movies to see them again. Yeah. Well, you know, here's what to me maybe separates 1982 from 1939 or any other year, and will always make it unique. 1982. Especially when you think about like the you know the the list of songs and albums that came out, 1982 was the year that pop culture took over the goddamn planet, yeah, and consumed everything. Well, that's great because right, MTV had just premiered the year before, but we see and we'll talk about this, I'm sure, the impact of MTV on the MTVization of movies and how songs could open a movie. You know, whether it be or redacted, I'm not going to say. I mean, on television, also you had St. Elsewhere, you know, from MTM, which was like the Hill Street Blues model, which proved like people wanted more adult, cool, you know, TV that wasn't just nonsense. I mean, Cheers debuted, Family Ties, 
Remington Steele, Knight Rider, and TJ Hooker. <laughs> but Magnum you know, PI, or was that the year before? That was the year before. But you also had uh, the Battle of the Raiders of the Lost Ark ripoffs. Yeah. Tales of the Gold Monkey, bring it back alive. I love Tales yeah. of the Gold Monkey. God help me. Absolutely. And Police Squad. Yeah. Yeah. And in bookstores, you had the color purple, Schindler's List, House of the Spirits, Bruce Feirstein's wildly popular bestseller, Real Mendoni Quiche, which was, you know, sort of a deconstructing of the what we call now the alpha male. Uh, no, not even alpha, toxic male. Because oh. I don't think there's anything wrong with alpha male. It's the toxic male that's the, the issue, right? So um the BFG came out that year, Pet Cemetery, 2010, Odyssey 2, not to be confused with the great video game system of the same name. Uh, the Running Man by Richard Bachman, The Tao of Pooh, a Pooh, um, Battlefield Earth. To my children. Battlefield uh-huh. Earth came. My friend, I, I have Bachman. it on my bookshelf right behind me. Actually, <laughs> the Mrs. Avalon. <laughs> Robert Av- and Robert uh, Robert uh, Heinlein's Friday came out that year. Yeah, it did. And you know what else? We, we you wouldn't have been talking about maybe a few years earlier. Video games. Pitfall came out that year. That was the Raiders of the Lost Ark of, of, of video games. Zaxxon, which I lost a ton of quarters in trying to get over that first wall. Got to get over that wall. Pole well, position came out that year. Joust. And of Pitfall course, Pitfall was okay, but it was no Jungle King. No, oh, I like Pitfall. I Steve Pitfall. used to have great Atari parties for his birthday at his house. I almost said that the hero of Pitfall was Dirk Diggler. Nope. Uh, no, it was actually Pitfall Harry. Yeah. And what is it, what is often considered one of the worst video games of all time, E.T. the e. video game. Mm-hmm. Which so. is far from one of the worst video games, but... Yeah. Now you know, it's well, garbage. Yeah, and it was also the beginning of, 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 you know, video games from companies that didn't make the um, console. You had, like, Parker Brothers doing right. The Empire Strikes Back and, you know, Activision doing Pitfall. And it was... It was so it really, like you said, this was sort of a, a year in which... It was the birth of sort of the pop culture universe we know without social media. This week on the 430 movie, The Old Person's Guide to the Universe. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But, but the great I mean, thing, yeah. Oh, sorry, ahead, go ahead. Well, see, the great thing about these films is they're enduring and they're enduring quality, which we're going to talk about in a second. But Steve, you, you want to say something? I was just going to say that, you know, on the old person's day, that that was a that was a year when you would get in your car and pay 91 cents a gallon to drive to the mall. And you could see any one of a number of great movies and you would go to the bookstore and you could go to the video arcade and you could go, you know, to all these stores that no longer exist. Well, you can watch Stranger Things and see what it was like for all you. Yeah, no, you won't. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> recapture the magic of what it was like so okay well i think we got we got a we got a week to program and uh darren uh, has a flight to catch to ticonderoga where him and bill shatner will be entertaining people on the set of uh the star trek official set tour so the uh, and the shat one night only <laughs> i like that you know it's like benny and the jets but instead yeah. it's doc and the shat we're, we're working we're working on our dance number <laughs> the bus and truck tour. That's right. <laughs> you, you live out of his truck. It'll be great. Just like old times. Okay. So uh, Steve Melching, Monday. 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 So many choices. So many 1982, choices. 1982. Yeah. Uh, I'll preface this by saying that uh, 
For me personally, 1984 was probably my favorite uh, summer for movie going for a number of reasons. But 1982 was also particularly meaningful because that was the year that my the summer that my family moved cross country from Virginia to Colorado. So I spent that whole summer without any friends because school hadn't started yet and there were no kids in the neighborhood. We spent a couple months living on uh, on Peterson Air Force Base in, in family temporary housing. So as a result, I spent a lot of that summer in shopping malls and in movie theaters because I had nothing else to do. So uh, I, I had nowhere else to go. Else to go. <laughs> so uh, I was able to see a number of these uh, movies, uh, uh, maybe more so than I would have otherwise, because uh, I was still reliant on my parents for rides uh, to the movie theater uh, before that time. Uh, this time they could just drop me off at the mall while they went house hunting. Because what I if really they went nowhere? <laughs> You're going <laughs> nowhere. <laughs> so I'm going to pick a movie that uh, has been also very uh, influential, inspirational. Um, it was a movie that um, continues to inspire filmmakers to this day. Uh, it inspired a sequel. Uh, it, uh, it it was the only one of two movies that I ever joined the official fan club to the first uh, one was the star Wars. I know what you're club. talking about. Thank God. It's not Fitzcarraldo. Werner, Werner Herzog uh, sends all the members of Fitzcarraldo fan club, a bullet uh, in the mail. That was uh, <laughs> in his rifle, the Kinski bullet. Uh, no, my pick, of course, is Ridley Scott's Blade Runner. Kind of nervous when I take tests. Take tests. I've got four skin jobs walking the streets, walking the streets. They're either a benefit or a hazard. They're a benefit, it's not my problem. Not my problem. I'm Rachel. Deckard. Have you ever retired a human by mistake? By mistake, by mistake. No. Need the old Blade Runner. Blade Runner. This is a bad, bad. How can it not know what it is? If only you could see what I've seen, what I've seen, what I've seen. More human than human is our motto. What if I go north? Disappear? Would you come after me? No, you wouldn't. But somebody would. It's too bad she won't live. Time to die. Will you help us? What seems to be the problem? Death. I want more life. An experiment. Nothing more. Nothing more. More human than human is our motto.
1982, of course, uh, starring Harrison Ford, whose uh, 80th birthday is today, today. the day we record this. Uh, And of course, uh, uh, you know, features the brilliant cinematography of Jordan Cronenweth is written by Hampton Fancher and David Peoples also starred the great Rutger Hauer, Sean Young, Edward James Olmos. I mean, everyone who's listening to this has seen Blade Runner. So I, you know, uh, I, I can only add my voice to the chorus that, you know, this this was a film that that affected me uh, profoundly. It made me seek out uh, uh, Philip K. Dick's books. Uh, This was the first, you know, the original Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep was the first book of his that I read, but I followed it with several more. Uh, It it really got me interested in dystopian fiction. Uh, I loved the Vangelis score and listened to the New American Orchestra release of the soundtrack right. constantly uh, until the uh, until the official uh, actual soundtrack recording came out years later. And, you know, I, I don't know what more you can say about Blade Runner other than, you know, it's uh, truly, I think, one of the most influential films of the 80s. I have a question for you, because this is something really interesting that came up when we were doing the documentary. Obviously, the filmmakers and everyone involved here, from Michael Dealey to Ridley Scott to you know, everyone, you know, feels like the final cut was the triumphant um, version of that that movie. But what was so interesting when we talked to, you know, sort of um, professional fans, right? Like we are. Um, there was a, a large group of them that prefer the theatrical version with the narration. Uh, Darren and Ashley are holding their hands up. I, I kind of do also. And I personally believe, I strongly believe, and it would be difficult to move me from this position, that there would be no fandom for Blade Runner had the final cut been released in theaters because it would have been in effing comprehensible. And when we sit down and we watch the final cut, as fans of the film, we sit down armed with all of the context. Because we've already heard the voiceover. That's and right. Remember it. And it's again and heads, again, whether or not it's in the movie or not. Yep. It's uh, it's it is it, the final cut is inaccessible. Uh, and I think nigh incomprehensible unless you have seen the theatrical version. That is so interesting that we all all four of us. Yeah. I would have never thought this to be feel that the original version is the best version of that movie. I think, I think really I'm a huge noir fan, obviously. Yeah. So I love the narration. I feel absolutely it's appropriate yeah. as you know, to the film. I think that Ridley Scott's uh, dislike of the, of the voiceover actually comes from his uh, having to record it with a grumpy Harrison Ford. <laughs> well, he, I don't think he did. I think it was recorded with, um, by the guys from Tandem, from um, by um, well, that's uh, not what he uh, said what, in his commentary. Because if, if you if you if you, or it was written by and and um, oh God, what's it? now I'm, I'm flaking on his name, but uh, uh, the, the partners in 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 the company that financed it because at the time yeah. they called in the completion. They were the completion bond company in addition to the financiers, and you know they took over the movie and fired Ridley and Michael Dealey. So. Um, I mean, and 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 that was one of the reasons why Ridley hates the narration so much. Yeah. Well, look, I, like uh, like all of us, I think that uh, that narration is the hook that gives you what kind of movie this is supposed to be. 
mm-hmm. that the the uh, the setting is different, but the uh, the characters and the situations are all from you know forties detective stories. Absolutely, yeah. And, That's so uh, it's so I interesting. It's essential. It's essential. And I have to give a shout out to our friend Charlie Blazarica, who did mm-hmm. such a magnificent job with his Blade Runner uh, Blu-ray um, re- uh, DVD release, in which uh, not only did it preserve all three versions of the film. Uh, you know, in the best available format for Blu-ray, but also he cut something I'd never seen before, which was this bizarre. He took all the trims, the deleted scenes, and alternate takes, and uh, discarded narration, and created sort of this bizarre amalgam of all of them, and it's incredibly watchable. Yeah. And uh, and and you know, it's bizarre and ridiculous, but it's such a great way to watch alternate because alternate takes are not really that enjoyable to watch usually. But this was such a brilliant way everything to showcase all that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, really wonderful. And and just obviously, this is the movie that launched a million ripoffs. Oh yeah, and, and I would just say I want to echo everything uh, Ashley and Darren said. I agree absolutely with their analysis uh, of the uh, the voiceover. And and for me, it's that's the version of the film that you know, I and all of us lived with for 10 plus years. That was the the only version in existence. I watched my bootleg VHS tape of that movie constantly uh, until I got the uh, laser disc of it. And uh, so you know, that's the version that's really seeped into my... Until we went to that cut at the newer. Yeah. I think there's another thing that we the, also the prefer. Work print. Yeah. Is it, I think, and, and maybe you guys feel differently. I don't like the fact that he's a replicant. You yeah, know, I don't either. I, I, like, I don't either. Well, he's not. Know. Yeah, I agree. I don't care what Ridley Scott says. He's not. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I think that it makes no sense if he if he is for the sequel. Right. The sequel doesn't make any sense if he's a replicant. So, yeah. I mean, not that it makes any sense anyway, but uh, I think that the story is a, it should be about human beings, because if he's a replicant, yeah. then it has no bearing on anything. Agree. Yeah. Well, it's also a tragic love story because, you know, she has an expiration date, right? So he doesn't know how long he's going to have with yeah. her at the end of the movie. But then again, they, who does? Then again, who does? But right, which is so <laughs> great. As, well, Bob Odenkirk doesn't know. But so, you know, it was, um, you know, whereas if he's a replicant, it just doesn't have that kind of impact. But, you know, it's funny because Ridley Scott is not an emotional guy. He's yeah. more of a cerebral guy. And I think the final cut is a much more cerebral movie, but I prefer the more emotional film. Yeah. 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 So Bud Yorkin, of course, was the, the one. I was oh, yeah. about. Right. So, okay. So a oh, great pick to start us off on Monday. Blade Runner, the 1982 theatrical cut. Um, terrific. And that brings us to Tuesday and Darren Docterman. Yes, Tuesday. Well, we were we were talking about the fact that uh, a lot of these uh, great movies that came out in '82 uh, were not sequels. Well, this movie kind of is uh, because it is closely related in development to uh, a planned uh, sort of uh, same in spirit uh, continuation movie uh, that uh, was originally. Uh, uh, create. Um, the original idea for this film was um, a sequel to Close Encounters uh, that basically bad aliens 
come to attack a little farmhouse uh, out in the middle of nowhere. Um, and uh, it was called Watch the Skies. And it was uh, uh, going to be directed by Ron Cobb. And, and kind of based on a, a true story or a, oh, something that allegedly reports, happened. Yeah, yeah. Reports, that's confused with Randall Tex Cobb. <laughs> um, and uh, it, it went uh, through some serious development. Uh, uh, I believe that uh, Rick Baker developed some aliens uh, that uh, incidentally looked fairly close to what the final character in the uh, in this film uh, looks like. Um, it went through uh, various stages of development pretty soon. Uh, Steven Spielberg, the producer, decided that, well, he'd like to uh, direct this one himself. And to save money, he cut down the five aliens to one, and he made it a nice alien. And that is how we got E.T., the extraterrestrial. In 1975, he directed Jaws. In 1978, he directed Close Encounters of the Third Kind. In 1981, he directed Raiders of the Lost Ark. And now, Steven Spielberg brings us E.T., the extraterrestrial. We will witness the arrival, the search, the desertion, the fear, the discovery, the friendship. I'm keeping him. The secret. The love. The warning. The signal. The mystery. The danger. The intrusion. The wonderment. The enchantment. The hope. The connection has been made. Universal Pictures presents Steven Spielberg's E.T. The Extraterrestrial. The interesting thing about E.T., uh, or at least one of them, is that it was directed at the same time that uh, another film was being made by Amblin, uh, Poltergeist. That we, it was also released in 1982, so we shouldn't talk about it. Well, yeah. But, <laughs> and also directed by Steven Spielberg. <laughs> but the thing is, I'm it kidding, was directed by Steven Spielberg. <laughs> um, the, everyone on set and yet it was also made in 1982, so we shouldn't talk about it. <laughs> well, I think we should talk about else, it. Perhaps someone else will bring up that movie, and uh, I can tell uh, the other half of this story. But anyway, so Steven Spielberg directed E.T., um, and uh, he wanted to be lean and mean and uh, uh, make this for uh, the least amount of money he could possibly do. Um because uh, even though he had uh, proven his uh, his uh, uh, ability to work under a budget with Raiders of the Lost Ark, 
he also uh, just wanted to uh, make it as as clean as possible so that he could get in and get out and, you know, maybe go direct another movie. I'm not saying what that other movie is, but uh, uh, look, E.T. turned out to be the biggest box office success ever uh, for many, many years. I think until, uh, was it Titanic that uh, unseated it? Something like that? I, I think it was a re-release of Star Wars Special Edition. Is that counted towards the gross of Star Wars? Uh, yeah, perhaps, perhaps. The, there, was a, there was a friendly rivalry between Spielberg and Lucas and later James Cameron, uh, you know, always uh, trying to one-up each other with their box office receipts. And, um, and I love it how every time one would uh, take the top spot, the- place an would, ad. Place an a full yeah, page in the ad trades, yeah. in variety, <laughs> uh, and uh, you know, use the talents of uh, their uh, in-house art departments to uh, draw lovely pictures of uh, the characters uh, saluting each other. E.T. is again a story about uh, a young boy who uh, whose uh, family has been torn asunder by divorce. This was uh, something that was very much uh, that Spielberg was trying to sort out in his mind and his soul uh, because he was from such a family. And he wanted to uh, basically work this out. And his uh, sort of uh, substitute father figure turns out to be an alien in this. Uh, And it is such a well-told story, such great uh, uh you know, young people performances are brought out by Spielberg, who uh, was obviously famous for uh, directing Carrie Guffey in Close Encounters so brilliantly and getting the, you know, proper uh, responses from him uh, that made his performance absolutely magical. Um, but uh, dealing with the, the three uh, uh, various aged uh, young actors in this, it's, uh, it's absolutely wonderful. And the, the natural uh sense that you get from them it seems like they're making up the movie as they go it's so well it's so well performed and there's not a fake moment in it which is really amazing uh because of course when you see uh, when you see films with uh, younger actors in it there's always it always feels sort of stagey or uh, or packaged in some way there's none of that affectation in this um all three uh, uh actors are amazing in it, including, uh, you know, uh, I think seven-year-old uh, uh, Drew, uh, Drew Barrymore, Drew Barrymore, who is amazing, amazing. And that, that has, you know, partially to do with the fact that Spielberg knew what he was doing when he was casting, but it also has to do with the fact that he was able to create an environment where these actors could basically be themselves and act through the movie that way. And it's truly amazing. And the technical uh, prowess of uh, Carlo Rambaldi and his crew and uh, the various uh, floor effect people uh, who uh, created the magic of E.T. as a puppet in various incarnations is truly amazing. And the performance there, uh, both on set and uh, from uh, Ben Burt providing various uh, sounds and vocalizations through other actors uh, for E.T., is truly um, amazing and realistic. And there's not one moment that you don't believe that this was actually filmed on set and it's a real alien. 
Well, he was uh, brilliant to keep the puppeteers around uh, so that when the kids would wander off and talk to E.T., it wasn't just a puppet that didn't move. Like it would interact with the kids right. because he wanted them to treat E.T. as though like E.T. was actor. real. Right. Yeah. Like another actor. That's why I'm not sure I agree with you that um, uh, E.T. was a father figure at Henry Thomas. I think he was more like a friend. Uh, that he had to protect. He was more the father figure. If anything, Peter Coyote was the father figure. I think in the in the movie. Yeah, well, I, on paper, maybe. I disagree with both but of he, you. But there you go. He doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, he had to protect ET. You know, he had a rise. To, you know, from things yeah, happening. But, but it's such a beautiful movie. It's it's so it's so well done, and the, all the beats in it are so uh, uh, correct and. It, you you laugh, you cry, you kiss three and a half bucks goodbye. But it's <laughs> it's such a fun movie to uh, to enjoy, and uh, it, it is timeless, really. And we started the season talking about how irate we were to overlook the academy, to overlook the value of the keys, you know, and these key departments. This movie, as brilliant as uh, Spielberg does with the movie and shooting it at kids' eye level and all. This, Alan Davio, director yep. of photography, John Williams, the score, yep. and of course, Carlo Rambaldi and his team make the magic with Spielberg. Yep. You know, Spielberg, there is no magic without them. And of course, Melissa Matheson's beautiful script. Yep. And I, I would want to shout out to the uh, set decorators as well, because they're one of the many things that I love about this movie is the sense of verisimilitude that he creates. I You, you so rarely saw kids bedrooms with the stuff that we all actually had like star wars action figures like real star wars action figures Mm -hmm. that were also present in another film another movie uh, that will remain nameless uh and the you know the kids playing dungeons and dragons and you know riding around on their bicycles this is all the stuff that uh is speaking for myself yeah that you get on your bike you ride around you play dnd play with your star wars action figures well you try to meet an alien my love for this movie is is boundless. I am uh, I am very much on record for how much I love this movie. Um, and yes, it is a technical marvel on every level. But where I think it truly excels, number one, I would say that it's it may be my favorite Steven Spielberg movie. Number two, um, he may have at some time uh, as a technical exercise topped himself on this movie. But I think in the traditional sense, when we speak of a masterwork, right? Um, the, the work that the journeyman does to prove that he has indeed become a master, uh, that E.T. may be Spielberg's masterpiece, where he demonstrates full command over everything, right? Because then he does the thing that W.C. Fields didn't want to do, and he worked with children, Right. And he made that work. Um, and he shows that he has uh, command of the material, both in, in big moments, but also in very small moments and subtle things that you don't quite appreciate when you're watching it. And more than that, he imbues it with just this emotional and thematic depth that is undeniable. E.T. is a film about empathy. It is a movie about learning that other people have feelings just like us. Right. And that's the fundamental thing that we go through when we're growing up. That is the fundamental transition from childhood to adulthood is learning that there are others outside of ourselves who exist to do more than simply to serve our needs. Right. That we also exist uh, to, to serve them, to feel for them, to feel empathy for them. That is Elliot's journey. That is the importance of E.T., 
He is learning to empathize with his mother who has experienced a terrible loss. And Spielberg doesn't linger on that loss. He just makes it important. He establishes it as important and that that relationship matters. And his mother loves him and all of her children through this movie in every possible way. Like Dewalt, she's a she is a great mom in this movie, but she's struggling and she feels like a real mom. And the the ways that Spielberg finds to sell all of these themes are just, and I've talked about these things before, but I mean, just the 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 TLDR on that. I mean, number one, um, the simple fact that the very beginning, well, really through most of the movie, um, the camera was sitting at kid's eye level. Right. All right. So you're automatically sitting inside of a point of view and you're seeing the world the way they do. It's like peanuts. Yeah, <laughs> it really is. Except like the, the, the adults do, do more than say that. Yeah, they don't go wah, 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 wah. Um, the, the government agents, keys, yep. you know, they're presented as they're the bad guys and they're coming. But when they arrive, we see them differently, right? Yeah. So we realize that the keys is this very complex character. There is this amazing moment when Elliot is in that tent and he's got the stuff over him and he's sick. And Keyes is standing over him and saying, Elliot, I have wanted this since I was 11 years old. Keyes, right? Elliot, 20 years later. That's right. And it's a beautiful, beautiful moment. And Spielberg shoots it so that you're constantly seeing them literally as reflections of each other. Yeah. Either dimly or brightly. It's so brilliant. And then I have to shout out one of my favorite cuts of all time. And it's because I'm a nerd. I have favorite cuts. Uh, and it's and I've talked about this one before too, but screw it. It's the 1982 week, and it's one of the greatest cuts of all time. It is Elliot like saying goodbye to ET, right? And remember, this is a movie about empathy and how like Elliot is linked to ET and what ET does, Elliot does, and what Elliot does, ET does, right? That that's what empathy is. And Elliot just overcome, falls to his knees. Spielberg, like a boss. Cuts to Dee Wallace, who falls to her knees and mimics that gesture that Henry Thomas gives. Uh, and it's just, it's beautiful. It's perfect. Because um, she is connected to Elliot, too. Exactly. Exactly. And it just, and he doesn't have to say it. He doesn't have to do any of that. He just lets you feel it. Yep. And it's a brilliant, brilliant film. But not as great as the sequel, where E.T. saves the green planet with Botanicus. Yes, well, that's true. I, I have some notes on the sequel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the minecar chase is really... It's a great pick, obviously. And, um, you know, I, 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 I'm sort of happy that you, um, uh, you know, implied that Ashley may be going a certain direction, because I was kind of you know, worried that we'd end up with like Porky's or Swamp Thing. But uh, oh, the night is young. <laughs> I think, was Porky's 1982? Because it, I'm going to change my Hell yes. It was. It oh, was. that's a great movie. But we'll talk about that later. But, uh, Remember what know, HBO yeah, yeah, so cool. <laughs> And that's why Ashley's pick is Inchon. Okay. So, <laughs> <laughs> Ashley, we're on Wednesday. Talk to us. What, what's, your, what's your pick? Well, you know, Box the weights. You've probably guessed. Uh, what my pick is, and I think it's actually it's a it's a nice little segue from ET. But I, I would rather platform it this way. 
that there are, there are very few films in the history of, of horror or really of any genre that change our understanding of what the genre can be um, or what the genre is, right? Um, in horror, you know, we have certain um, approaches. We have the monster, which could become the slasher film. We have the haunted house. We have the possession story. We have all of that. Um, Rosemary's Baby was groundbreaking because it brought all of that uh, into a contemporary setting and it made it very present, right? The Exorcist was groundbreaking because it introduced this idea of science uh, into um, how we understand evil and the occult and Satan um, and possession and all of those things. Of science rituals being equally as frightening as... uh Oh, absolutely. They're terrifying. They're terrifying. It's a, it's a brilliant film because of that. And there was a whole period during the 70s where, um, it, both in literature and in film, uh, where there were attempts to break out of the, the mold of what these things could be, right? And to varying degrees of success or notoriety. Like, for example, you have Burnt Offerings, which you know, took the haunted house story and modernized it. You have, you know, the, the omen, um, which is kind of this interesting uh, little political thriller on top of a, a possession story. Um, you have the Amityville horror, which, which bows in the direction of uh, a suburban horror story or the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which really created the, the slasher movie. And I think, well, arguably, uh, but it takes it to another level. What my pick is special for is taking all of the sort of the tropes of horror, the things that we understand about horror, personalizing them, and instead of making them about the big idea, making them about the people, making them about the family in the middle of it, and really creating what I believe is the first truly successful uh, suburban horror film. 1982's Poltergeist. From Steven Spielberg, director of Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Poltergeist. Contrary to popular superstition, hauntings and poltergeist incidents do not necessarily occur in old, dark, abandoned mansions. They can occur anytime, any place. The house looks just like the one next to it, and the one next to that, and the one next to that. And yet, it's special. It is inhabited by a young couple. Their three children. And something more. Poltergeist is a German word. Geist meaning ghost, polter meaning noisy. So a poltergeist is a noisy ghost or noisy spirit. There's no simple answer as to why these phenomena occur. At first, like a child, it simply wanted attention. At first, people are just puzzled by the phenomena. Soon, it became inquisitive, experimental, mischievous. Furniture topples over. Objects fly around by themselves. Devices may be shattered. Fires may spontaneously break out. Most of the time, there's a particular person that the events seem to focus around. It grew restless. 
initial outbreak will terrify the family. Then it became frustrated. They are typically violent. Hostile. Apparitions have been reported. Angry. It can be violent, vicious, and destructive. And now, its focus is clear. As of yet, we don't know how to control them. Its form is revealed. And the games are over. Next summer, the unknown will be revealed. The invisible will be seen. Poltergeist. The first real ghost story. Right. Surprising. Um, so, uh, you know, it's what here. I find like, yeah. like, <laughs> like most most cool about Poltergeist is that um, the uh, the story, the film. And I know Darren is going to I'm going to let Darren talk at length about the, the Spielberg Toby Hooper thing. Um, but where the, the film's interest lies is is not with the ghosts. Right. Um, it has all the things we talked about, right? It's the suburban setting. It has the science. It has, you know, it's contemporary. It has all of that, you know, it's, but what makes it different is that it's, it's primary interest is the family in the center. And in that way, I'll tell you the movie that it reminds me of more than anything else. Close Encounters. Mm-hmm. Um, because that's what Close Encounters was concerned with. Close Encounters wasn't a movie about aliens. It was a movie about people contending with aliens. Right. And in this case, Poltergeist is about a family contending with ghosts and what it does to their relationships and their love for their children and the things that you learn. It's, you know, just subtle little moments like, you know, Craig T. Nelson, who's brilliant in this movie, rejecting the idea that his daughter would be, my little girl's not afraid of me. You know, it's just... But yeah, dad, she is because holy crap, have you seen you? She's watched Coach. She Craig, knows. Craig T. Nelson, who is Barry Levinson's comedy partner. Did you know that? I did not know that. Mm. Did not, did not know, know, that. know that. They were, but a, he they is, were a stand-up uh, team. He's terrific. And, and what's brilliant, I mean, so many things are brilliant about this movie. And it's right down to the very last shot. Because, you know, the, the premise of this movie is that the, is that the five-year-old daughter, Carol Ann, uh, is communicating with ghosts who are speaking to her through their television. Eventually, she disappears in with the TV people, and literally all hell breaks loose as you know experts in the supernatural poltergeists. And like, she's he, your your daughter is afraid of you. Like Linda Hunt, is that Linda Hunt? No, no it's not Linda Hunt. It's um Zelda Rubenstein. Zelda Thank Rubenstein. you. Yes, uh, she has many. Shows up with like her team of parapsychologists. Right. The original uh, Ghostbusters. The original yeah. Ghostbusters show up it. But the very end of this movie, the family does what any family would do. They pick up like they don't really have any choices. The house is gone. Spoiler alert. But they go to a motel room and the motel door closes. And then the last shot is the door opens back up and Craig T. Nelson pushes the TV outside and it's brilliant and it's perfect and it tells you everything. Because TV is the actual villain in this. Oh, it totally <laughs> is. But it's it's scary, it's cool, it's uh it's 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 fun, it has a scary clown. We've talked about that. 
Um, it uh, it is That's a, a amazing score by Jerry Goldsmith. Yes, terrific score by Jerry Goldsmith. Cinematography by Matthew F. Leonetti, who Star Trek fans might recognize as the dude who shot uh, Star Trek: First Contact and Insurrection. Um, but it's a it's a beautiful movie. It has like all of Spielberg's cool like lights flashing and wind machines. I mean, what else do you want? I, 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 just, got, I just got this. I think this movie has possibly my favorite family. Uh, in any movie i just i just love that family that husband and wife relationship feels so real it's so charming and loving uh How Joe Williams she is, is, yeah when like the chairs moving watch this yes! it's just great and it also yes. has one of the most chilling lines of dialogue for me for my money in any movie when carol ann says over the tv there's somebody here mm-hmm. like oh fuck. yeah yeah just yeah, yeah. <laughs> I just, I, I adore this movie. Uh, it's w- one of my other favorites of 1982. Um, uh, the, the, the suburban horror element where the, the, it really came home, the idea that this kind of stuff could happen in your house and you're in the middle of a neighborhood and there are people all around you, but you're stuck in this house with these terrifying things happening that you're helpless against. This is brilliant. I agree. And it doesn't seem to have the enduring appeal that some of these other films, like when I say enduring appeal, it holds up amazingly well. Yeah. What it doesn't have is people don't talk about it, you know, as one of these great legendary films, the way they do some of these other films. And it deserves to be talked about. Because there's no fun cosplay from it. The the scene when they're talking at night and they're whispering about death is Mm -hmm. an absolutely beautiful scene. Well, and how the the investigators are scared and leave. But it also has the great character actor, James Karen, with one of the most memorable lines, you know, uh, ever when Craig T. Nelson grabs him by the throat and says, you moved the headstones, but not the bodies. I mean, what a great catalyst for a horror, a suburban horror movie and a tract home. Who could ever live? I mean, Jeff Bond, I guess, but in a tract <laughs> home development like that, you know, we talk about people said, oh, after Psycho, I was afraid to take a shower or Jaws. I was afraid to go to the ocean. I'd be afraid to live in a tract home community after yeah, seeing Yeah, but you were like guys. that anyway, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> we know you. Yeah, well, you got me there. But maybe it dates back to Poltergeist. My snobbery. Well, uh, my my, <laughs> my old neighborhood was very much that. And uh, when I moved there, I thought, oh, my God, this is uh, this is the place. Uh, but uh, just going back a little bit to uh, the rumor, and it's, you know, it's substantiated now, that Steven Spielberg actually directed most of Poltergeist. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you, if you uh, didn't see any credits on the movie, you could absolutely tell that Steven Spielberg directed it because it has all of his, uh, dare I say, catchphrases, visual catchphrases. Um, it's, uh, it's really well done. And apparently, uh, from what I heard, uh, Spielberg hired Toby Hooper to direct it. And after the first week or so of dailies, he thought, you know what? This isn't really... This isn't really turning out the way I envisioned it. And uh, rumor has it that he went to Toby Hooper and said, uh, go over there, sit down, and I'll make you rich and famous. Yeah, I mean, there are different versions of that story. So, some or that, you know, uh, Hooper, you know, Spielberg was a strong producer in the Salisnick mode. And when Steven yeah. Spielberg's there and one of the most successful directors of all time, that he was, you know, and he had only done these smaller independent movies that he was intimidated and he was happy to have Spielberg there. And 
Yeah. Spielberg, for the most part, directed a lot of the key scenes. And there were certain things that were, you know, Spielberg, you know, Hooper would go off and, and do it. It depends who you ask. Like Zelda right. Rubenstein said, uh, you know, clearly it was Spielberg. But you talk to Joe Beth Williams and she's like, well, it's more complicated than that. You know, so whether they're being, well, you know, diplomatic or, or whatever. I mean, there definitely are Hooperisms in the movie, but obviously it's very much a Steven Spielberg film. And I've, I've heard story. Well, I'm going to say that I've heard stories because that implies that they're rumors. Uh, I, I have heard things that 100% corroborate the outcome of what you're talking about, but, yeah. uh, but color the, the motivations very differently. I'll put it that way. Well, there was also that Hooper was unable to direct certain things because of things that he was going through at the time. Yeah. Yeah. So no matter uh, what it was, uh, I, I tend to uh, file uh, poltergeist in with the films of Steven Spielberg. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, he produced it, he wrote it or he co-wrote it. You know, yeah. it was very much a, a Spielberg film. Yeah, well, and it was he... another film that was written in the wake of a writer's strike. So they had only been able to do so much, Grace and Victor. So Spielberg went and did a lot of work on that script and they weren't able to do the rewrite. So, yeah, it very much he felt very close to that script. And it shows because that family is a Spielberg family. When we see Meet the Fablemans, I'm sure they won't be that different from the Freelings. But the fact that, that this is the this is the dark side of the coin and ET is the light side of the mm-hmm. coin, and they are basically they're basically the same movie from different points of view. And from uh, a certain point of view, I find it fascinating, and uh, I I love them both, and it's uh, it's just so fun to watch them later, you know, with the eyes of an adult, uh, so you can see <laughs> different points of view. But it is very nostalgic too because. The 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 the, the uh, uh, remote control battle at the beginning, you know, which is obviously that's something a thing of the past. Out, outmoded the year after, yes. <laughs> you know, and of course the Star Spangled Banner uh, <laughs> uh, signaling the end of the broadcast day. So <laughs> there are a lot of these what would be anachronisms now to you know, but that were wonderfully of the moment that capture that feeling. It of preserves being. that time. Absolutely, and isn't it great that the uh, our our audience. Well, because they all sort of watch all these movies we recommend in order as we recommend them, uh, that they have the opportunity to watch E.T. and then Poltergeist back to back. Yeah. And see what we're talking about for themselves. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Well, I got to say, what a great week this is shaping up to be. (laughs) And only one person could destroy it. Um, (laughs) You know, I, I... Obviously, we've had two Spielberg, uh, wonderful Spielberg films. We've had uh, extraordinary um, uh, sci-fi vision of the future from Ridley Scott. So, you know, I'm going to go in another direction. Of course, I'm talking about none other than uh, Woody Allen's A Midsummer Night's Sex Comedy. No, I'm not. <laughs> I, I, you know what? Th- that is probably one of my least favorite Woody Allen. I know it's hard yeah. to believe. There are a couple of Woody Allen movies I don't like. And well, that it does is one have the Padishah Emperor's Shaddam the Fourth. It does have Jose <laughs> Ferrer. That's right. That's right. Getting ready to, 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 to meet the Spice uh, <laughs> the spice Guild. Um, but uh, yeah, so I'm not, not, uh, that would not, not, not be my, my pick. I, I did, you know, it's funny. I did think about, though, there's a, another wonderful little detective movie, Wayne Wang's Chan is Missing, which uh, it was a more pleasant experience I went to with my mother. Then The Hunger um, a year later, uh, because we used to go to movies and she took me into, I remember to see um, 
uh, Chan's making got a great review from Vincent Camby. This is the era where you'd read a great review, much like some of you listen to the 430 movie and go see a movie. We'd read this great review of Vincent Camby saying, this is Wayne Wang. This is a, a fantastic independent movie. It's kind of like a Philip Marlowe movie in Chinatown. And uh, so... Uh, and we, it sounds we, like something that the kids from uh, The Shining would yell out. Wayne Wang! Wayne Wang! <laughs> Okay, but anyway, but and it just came out on Criterion. So a little plug for Chan is missing, but obviously, uh, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna go with that because there's so many significant films of that year, um, and it's so funny because I was absolutely convinced that I was gonna go with one movie, which I realized I picked recently, and I'm good. So I'm not going to go with that. I'm gonna go. I'm, I'm making a late switch in the game, wow. and usually it's because of something you pick. This is just a late pick. So. My pick was going to be Sidney Lumet's The Verdict, mm -hmm. uh, which is a just brilliant film with Paul Newman, Jack, uh, Jack Warden, um, and the great Charlotte Rampling, the luminous Charlotte Rampling. Um, uh, and it just a tour de force performance um, uh, by uh, Paul Newman. He should have gotten an Oscar for it. Um, but I, I'm not going to go with The Verdict as much as I love that film, because I'm going to pick a more obscure movie. Um, that didn't get a lot of love from the studio that released it. It's Costa Garvis's Missing. Name a missing person. Don't you have this written down somewhere? I've answered it a thousand times. Name a missing person, please. You've been in touch with our embassy down there? Well, Senator, all they seem to know is that my son is missing. Date of disappearance. He's been gone two weeks. He could be hurt or... Tortured. Time of disappearance. I look for him everywhere. He's just gone. Vanished. After analyzing all the data, we still come to the conclusion that he must be in hiding. You know damn well he's not in hiding. Our whole neighborhood saw him picked up by a goon squad. I don't want to hear any of your anti-establishment paranoia. Why don't you just go home? I'll find my husband by myself. Is he? He's in the north. He should be out of the country sometime next week. There's another theory that your son was picked up by leftists posing as soldiers. There are even people who think it may have been his idea to make it look like they're arresting Americans. They are arresting Americans. What stupid thing did Charles do? He was a bit of a snoop. The son's a pretty popular guy around here. Poked his nose around in a lot of dangerous places. All of a sudden, this place is like a free fire zone. I should have just for being left-handed. If you had stayed where you belong and paid a little attention to the basics, this never would have happened. I don't want to fight with you. I just want to get Charlie back. What kind of world is this? said the man must disappear he knew too much don't you think that's a hell of a statement especially considering we're here to protect american citizens how can i verify that you can't do you think he's dead i'm not going to leave this country till i find my son alive or dead just hold anywhere in any way you can tie my hands you can blindfold me i just want my boy back
And uh, the movie starred John Shea, Sissy Spacek, uh, in a small role who was all over the, Dave, the great David Clennon, who a lot of you know from 30 something. He had just done John Carpenter's The Thing. Um, he was also in Lady and Gentleman, The Fabulous Stains that year. But he's terrific in Missing. Missing is a sort of thinly veiled version of the American coup in um, uh, Chile, but they don't say it's Chile in the movie. And Jack Lemon plays this um, guy who's sort of estranged from his son, um, but his son disappears during the revolution and uh, he goes down to try and find him uh, and, and and find out what happened. He sort of teams up with his uh, the hippy-dippy girlfriend, the wife, uh, Sissy Spacek, and um, Jack Lemon is extraordinary. He's so good. He's Loma's jo- Jehovah's <laughs> Witness uh, dad who has all kinds of political. He's on the right, you know, son's on the left, and but he just wants his son back. And it's an incredible performance. It was nominated for Best Picture. It didn't win. And obviously it wasn't getting, Universal did not give it a great release during the Reagan revolution of the 80s. Um, but, uh, you know, Costa Garvis was a very political filmmaker, but boy, he knew how to use the camera and create suspense and drama. And uh, uh, Missy is just a terrific film. I didn't see it in the theater. I remember seeing it um, on home video, probably in early 83, and just thinking, wow, this is a great movie. I hadn't watched it for many, many years. And when I was first diving into doing the documentary, I was refreshing my memory about a lot of movies about the, and I, I rewatched Missing and I thought, wow, this is really a great movie. Yeah, I remember really loving it as well. Uh, and it's one that I've been meaning to revisit also because, you know, you say it was nominated for Best Picture. It didn't win. It did win the Palme d'Or that year at Cannes Film Festival. And Jack Lemmon and Sissy Spacek were both nominated uh, for Best Actor and Best Actress. And it, But it did win uh, Best, uh, Best uh, Adapted Screenplay. Yeah, and it's a great it's a great script. And it's, it's very suspense. It's a great political thriller. In that sense, though, it's very much... Um, like Darren was saying earlier, uh, you know, son of the seventies, you know, it very, it's more of a seventies film than an eighties film. And of course the, um, the coup in Chile, uh, the military coup in Chile was very fresh at the time. And I think it only been seven years since it happened, but it's, um, but it doesn't feel like you're being fed an agenda or political, um, and, and, and to see Jack, you know, Lemon coming around, just feeling like his son, you know, the, the government could do no wrong and his son must have done something terrible. And by the end, he he, he realizes what's really happening down there. Um, it's it's just a great, great picture and uh, really uh, chilling as well. But Jack Lemmon is, is superb. I mean, we've seen him in so much from, you know, The Apartment, Some Like It Hot, to later on, Glenn Gary, Glenn, Glenn Ross. This, to me, is another one of his, you know, towering performances, one of many. Yeah, I agree yeah. That, was so, that was a that, surprise pick from Mark Altman. Yeah. Well, I, I just, you know what? We got a whole week this time. Thursday is the new Wednesday. Well, like, and I really, we got to round out the week. We can't have all genre films. I think it's important mm-hmm. to have, uh, you know, if we're going to program seven days, let's, uh, let's get a little. Yeah, and what was I going to do? Go with Basket Case? That's that's Ashley's job. <laughs> so, uh, I, I mean, plus, I'm really, I'm touched by the fact that so many of our audiences will say on social or whatever, that after hearing the show, that they go out and seek out these movies that we recommend that they haven't, haven't seen. So I feel a responsibility, you know, to try and keep a mix between sort of the old favorites and... Yeah. 
um, you know, some maybe more obscure films. So whether it's Missing or Death Race 2000. <laughs> I mean, that's why, I, look, I, I, obviously, if we're looking for comedy, 48 Hours would, would, would certainly be something that we would have in contention. The emergence of a, a true comedy legend in Eddie Murphy. But you also had more quieter films like Diner, which I think yeah. is the ultimate film yeah. about fandom in a way. And French fries. Directed by Gary Levinson, who was Craig T. Nelson's comedy. (laughs) (laughs) And of course, my favorite year, which is such a wonderful film with Peter O'Toole. Well, and of course, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, uh, go ahead. Go ahead, Steve. Uh, I would say Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Yeah. Universal Pictures presents everything you always wanted to do in high school with everyone you always wanted to do it with. Hey, bud, (laughs) let's party. They're the students of Ridgemont High. <laughs> Brad Hamilton, the fast food king. I shall serve no fries before their time. It says 100% guaranteed, you moron. Mister, if you don't shut up, I'm going to kick 100% of your ass. Charles Jefferson, <laughs> a man with a mission. Oh, gnarly. Linda Barrett, not exactly the girl next door. Awesome. And Jeff surfs up Spicoli. People on lewds should not drive. See Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Another iconic comedy uh, from 1980. Well, you know, it's important to put that movie in context, too, because that was the year, you know, teen exploitation was at at its height, uh, particularly with the emergence of home video. So you had films like Last American Virgin, Slumpy Part Part of Massacre, you know, Zapped with Lee Ames and and Scott Baio. (laughs) Oh, my God, of course. uh, But Fast Times was, you know, was different because it was, you know, I mean, you would say that's an A picture compared to all these B pictures. Yeah. Uh, Cameron Crowe um, adapted it based on his experience going back to high school undercover and finding out what high school was really like. It wasn't the blackboard jungle, you know, it was, uh, <laughs> and 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 it's just beautifully directed by Amy Heckerling with, um, you know, a lot of um, really emotional scenes. It, it deals head on with abortion which is more relevant than ever. And, uh, but it also has that great comedic performance by Sean Penn as Spicoli. Right. Heart and humor. And, and lots of pizza and Mr. Hand. <laughs> Speaking and of uh, comedic performances, we can't forget Arnold Schwarzenegger in Conan the Barbarian. Hey. <laughs> well, Steve kicked off the season with that, didn't he? Yeah, he did. He's wearing the shirt. Wearing the shirt. Oh, dun, 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 dun. What is good in life, Steve? <laughs> Cause your enemies to see them driven before you and hear the lamentation of the women. And to buy the t-shirts on 430movie.com. <laughs> right. <laughs> and you Get know your merch. Well, and there's another comedy, Victor Victoria. Yeah. Which Brilliant. was a best picture nominee, I believe. A terrific movie. Another one I've been meaning to revisit. Blake Edwards. By the way, yeah, on the, the Conan Barbarian front, let's not forget that Conan uh, co-starred Sandal Bergman. 
uh, who's quite awesome in that movie. And she starred in another movie in 1982 called She, that is totally effing bananas, that has been described uh, as uh, Conan the Barbarian meets uh, Mad Max. And you know what? It's not that good. It is not as good as that description. But well, you Samuel know, Bergman is in it. The, and he's the, awesome. uh, the Golden Globes gave her a newcomer of the year, I think. Um, but that was also the year, speaking of Golden Globe favorites, of Pia Zadora in Butterfly. Oh, my God. Oh. <laughs> oh. Wow. And they complain about the Golden Globes now. I mean, come on. Look at what they were giving the awards to back then. Well, I think we would be remiss if we also didn't uh, mention the start of another franchise. Uh, from Sylvester Stallone. Yep, uh, absolutely. First yeah. Blood, Rambo yeah. One, First Blood. Uh, <laughs> well, it was a great year for Sly. I mean, he not only had year. First Blood, but also Rocky Three, well. which was a mainstream blockbuster. Yeah. You, you know, it's so interesting to look at how Rocky was this Academy Award serious drama. When you get to Rocky Three, it's like Avengers Endgame. <laughs> you know, it's almost like a superhero movie. Yeah. You know, I mean, if you watch them, you just hear them slugging it out and playing the Foley and, and and I mean, like because I mean, when when Hulk Hogan starts drawing him around the ring at the beginning, and he, he, he's literally like something out of Guardians of the Galaxy, and then Mister T is like a, a Thanos or something. I mean, it's but it's, <laughs> but, but it's great. I mean, it's so funny. <laughs> and you're dead, fool. <laughs> My prediction for the fight. Y'all got disappeared. of the fools. It, it's so much fun. And of course, this goes back to what I was saying about music because I, the tiger, you couldn't go 10 minutes without hearing I, the tiger, on the radio or at the supermarket or in an elevator. And everyone knew Rocky Three because of I, the tiger. Yeah. And it, and it made everyone just start skipping rope. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's true. Exactly. What I love about Eye of the Tiger is the way just the the guitar riffs. It's just it sounds like punching, you know, boom, 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 boom. You know, it's like yeah. it's like a, the song itself is a boxing match. Well, and then you had another film that also music uh, it was a huge part of a success, which is Officer and Gentleman. Oh, you know what I, mean. I joined the Navy. You joined the Navy. <laughs> What's so funny? <laughs> you man. Jets. Want to fly jets? Grace, look at yourself. Officers don't have tattoos. What's your name, boy? Mayo. Zach Mayo, sir. Go, go, come on, baby. You got a girl, Mayo, to walk? No. I ain't looking for one either. What are you looking for? I'll tell you something about the local girls that come across the Sound on the ferry every weekend. One thing in mind, unless they marry themselves a naval aviator. I heard about these girls looking for a husband. Tell me. I will use every means necessary, fair and unfair, to trip you up, to expose your weaknesses as a potential aviator and as a human being. I expect to lose half of you before I'm finished. So get out of here! Take a big gas to fly. Just how far would you go to get that? Would you let yourself get pregnant? Don't trick him or try to trap him. So, Zach, what do you do with the girl when you're through with her? Huh? I see you've had some training, man, eh? In every class, there's always one joker who thinks that he's smarter than me. 
What kind of a human being are you? You better lock it up, boy. I'm trying to be nice to you. I'm trying to be your friend, Zach. Then be a friend. Get out of here. Uh, now, why would a slick little hustler like you want to sign up for this kind of abuse anyway? I want to fly jets, sir. My grandmama wants to fly jets. No, man, you ain't nothing special. And if you ask me, you ain't got no chance of being no officer. I ain't gonna quit. You're out. Don't you do it. Don't. I got nowhere else to go. Richard Gere, Deborah Winger, an officer and a gentleman from Paramount Pictures. The, yeah. the, the Jennifer Warren's um, a Joe Cocker song up there where we belong, you know. And speaking of people who've got nowhere else to go, Steve. Why, guys, it was a callback to freaking 20 minutes ago. Work with me here. Oh, officer and gentleman, yes. <laughs> and Deborah Winger, the voice of ET, is wonderful in that. Movie. That's right. Yeah, that's correct. I mean, and that kind of was like Top Gun. You know, it's interesting. You know, these, these military dramas always work, and that, but that was a romance that it had the military stuff that the guys loved, and right. it had this very beautiful romance. Well, it wasn't that beautiful that. Uh, you know, that, that appealed to, to to women. And that was a huge hit. People forget. We talk about, you know, start other films. And uh, Officer Gentleman was the the big hit that year. It was a big hit. And, and yeah. Louis Gossett Jr. was fantastic in it as the drill sergeant. He won an Oscar yeah, for that that's performance. Right. In fact, and then like he followed that up with an Oscar for Iron Eagle. Oh, <laughs> in no. fact, I'd like to nominate Officer and a Gentleman for Friday. Oh, you want to? Okay, let, let, let's consider that. Let's consider that uh, because we have three more slots. So Officer Gentleman, which is a really good film. Yeah. And a lot of people in the audience may not have seen it because it has not, when I say stood the test of time, I don't mean the movie doesn't, but that it just isn't in the, people don't talk about it the way they did. Taylor Hackford is not in that pantheon of directors people talk about. And um, it's not a film that people talk. And yet it was a really great film. It was huge. It was and huge. it was huge. And and it was parodied on The Simpsons. So how how absurd can it be? <laughs> I didn't even go out with my wife. But you know how we talked Our about Sly having two great movies that minutes. year with First Blood and Rocky Three. You know, people forget that um, Meryl Streep uh, had a great year uh, with um, she had Sophie's Choice and not so great Still of the Night, uh, the, the Robert Benton film. But how about Jessica Lange? How about Jessica Lange? Not you only did Dwan? she. Well, yeah, Dwan. <laughs> not only did she do Francis, which is a good movie, if not great, Francis. by Graham Clifford about uh, the uh, the late uh, Francis Farmer, yeah. but you know, a film that should certainly be in contention for this week, Sidney Pollock's Tootsie. Yes. Yeah, one hundred percent. Great, great movie that like, and it does a thing that uh, that I, I th- we rarely see done effectively now, which is it marries high concept drama and comedy and it makes them all work and it's not shot like a soap opera right and it doesn't lean i mean there's obviously shtick but it doesn't lean into the shtick because it's afraid that the drama won't work the drama works first and then it's funny because the high concept underneath it uh is is integrated into the characters and who they are uh, and 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 what they want, and and you know, and Dustin Hoffman's arc through that film, 
Um, and then it gives you great lines. Like, I mean, it's like, can you, can you get, can you come back a little bit more? How, how do you feel about Cleveland? I mean, Come on. <laughs> that movie is terrific. Probably can be made today. A tomato doesn't have logic. A tomato can't move. Which is a shame <laughs> because it really is a powerful statement about sexism. Yeah. And yet you yeah. probably couldn't be made today. You know, which is which is which is sad. But it's, it's just a great movie. And as you said, it, it believes in the drama, which is why the comedy works so well. Right? And, and that script is a Swiss watch. I mean, we actually Larry Galbart. Yeah, in my uh, uh, advanced motion picture script analysis class at SC, taught by uh, the dean of the school, uh, Frank Danielle, uh, that was our final assignment was to break that particular script down mm. um, via his scene structure method. And that script is tight. It's great. Well, let, let, so Darren put into contention, officer and gentlemen, I think because we have three days, let's try this. Let's each nominate a film for Friday and then work from there. To okay. narrow it down. So, Ashley, Mr. Wednesday, which is now Mr. Friday, um, what what would you put into the uh, into this d- debate of four yeah. films? The good news about uh, this week is that because 1982 is so wonderful, so many of these movies, I know, having gone back and listened, uh, we've covered so far this season. So it's it's not that our job is easier, uh, but it's uh, it's it's less, it's perhaps less stressful than it than it might have been. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm tempted to nominate Swamp Thing. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, honestly, like, look, there are, there are some actually like some really cool horror films. Yep. Uh, from 1982. Um, it, honestly, Swamp Thing is kind of an interesting failure. Cat People, uh, which is like cool and sexy and different. And they just like there there haven't been a lot of movies like that. Halloween three, which is ridiculously underrated and yep. is super cool. Um, obviously, uh, the, the you know, King Kamehameha uh, horror film of, of that year, The Thing. Um, and Creep Show, which is also a, a terrific anthology. Some of those parts are, are more terrific than others. But I think if you like put a gun in my head and said, Ashley, pick one of those to represent 1982, um, I, I could make arguments. Bring your for- key, sir. <laughs> <laughs> if I had to make if I had to make a pick, then I would say for 1982, the thing. Okay, so we have Darren. Officer and gentlemen, we have Ashley with John Carpenter's The Thing. Steve, what what would you what do you want to throw out for 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 Friday? I, I'm just wondering if you know. I'm thinking Friday. Friday is Friday is a night. Uh, it's date night. Friday is date night. So you're going out. You want to see. You want to go see a mainstream kind of movie. You want to see a, a good drama, a good comedy. Maybe a good thriller, a good scare movie. Uh, whereas I'm thinking Saturdays, maybe it's a Saturday matinee. So that might, you know, oh, no. if, if you're not going to say it, are you? Movie. I, but maybe I will when we get to Saturday. And and Sunday is maybe, you know, Sunday night at the movies. Is that more of a, is that more of an epic movie? Is that more mm. of a, an Oscar type movie night? Mm. I don't know. Like Inchon. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> 
So I'm going to, you know, I'm just going to, I'm going to go circle back to Fast Times at Ridgemont High for, for Friday. It's, Ooh, a, it's like okay. a date night movie. Okay, okay. And we haven't had a comedy. So. so oh, well, so then I would have thought you'd go with the trail of the Pink Panther that they made <laughs> after Peter Sellers died and used outtakes for the previous movies. Uh, I, I wish they'd called that the trial of the Pink Panther. Exactly. Don't wait wow. for the translation. Answer right. now. Those are all such great picks. I feel like throwing something like Grease 2 in just so I know oh, it doesn't oh, get God damn it. Um, you know, um, I don't know if I want to, I want to, you know, going to ho- hold my fire and just, you know, throw in something that, 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 that I know we're not going to go with. Um, huh. Let's see. You know, like Kenny Rogers and Six Pack? <laughs> um, the world according to Garp. Another movie that I, I, you know, look, I, I, there's, you know, a movie, another movie I discovered on home video that was huge in '83. You know, it's an, a huge indie that no one talks about today, which was Eating Raul, Paul, Paul mm-hmm. Martel's film, which was a huge. I, I mean, everyone was watching this on home. Paul video. Martel of Death Race 2000. Thing? It was the last thing I ever saw <laughs> Robert Beltran in that I liked, and oh. uh, <laughs> and uh, and then of course, you know. But there were so many. There was another film, like foreign films, um, you know, later on with like Run Lola Run and Crouching Tiger. They were sort of these foreign films that like became mainstream, like where everybody was talking about, not just the quote unquote, you know, Ingmar Bergman crowd. But um, Diva was a movie like that in 82. You remember that? Yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And that was that was a film that everybody was um, talking about. And, uh, you know, I've already picked Firefox, so I'm not going to throw that out. <laughs> I, I, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to go with something that you guys already mentioned. First Blood. I'm yeah. going to say First Blood. Did we pick that for Slide? We week? did. Fuck, we did. We did. Fuck First Blood. Okay. Rocky <laughs> Three. <laughs> yeah, Rocky, baby. Rocky Three. So, okay. I so think, we got, I, think, I think the 1982 is too big to be fit into one week. It's too big for one week. We need a whole year for 1982. We're giving it seven days. So because it was a whole year. Officer and gentlemen, should we just go around and do another week with the with oh the four God. of us? Oh, oh I don't think. I don't. No, okay. No. So so <laughs> so we got <laughs> officer and gentlemen. I, I do have a plane to catch. Yep, that's right. Officer and <laughs> gentlemen, we got officer and gentlemen. The thing, and um, fast and, times and fast times. Okay. I, you know what? I'm gonna go with. I'm gonna. I'm gonna advocate for officer and gentlemen simply because fast times and the thing. They get a lot of attention. Everyone knows those movies. They're brilliant. Officer and a Gentleman could use some love. I think it would be a good film for people to check out. Because after all, it. it does lift us up where we belong. Uh, <laughs> and you know what? We're going to have plenty of ham over the weekend. So let's go with Mayo on Friday. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> <laughs> wow. But you know what? I agree. I think it's a great movie. Uh, and I, I do think it's kind of a perfect uh friday film and it's it's out of the box and yet at the same time it really expresses a lot of the things that are 1982 it's a great date movie you're totally getting laid after uh going yeah that's what i thought 19 when i was 11 years old and i was (laughs) it was (laughs) that was that was that was my big oh god you know (laughs) yeah that's 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 really funny okay so let's go with officer gentleman for friday and then for the weekend, of course, the thing will get you laid too. Oh, but for different yeah. reasons. <laughs> let, 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 let's look at some of the big, 
sort of fun weekend movies because I think you had the right idea. Like Saturday is a certain kind of movie, maybe a, a more elevated comedy. And then Sunday we can just go for like the kind of matinee. So I was really worried that Steve was going to go for the Saturday matinee and uh, that legendary filmmaker, John Houston, the man who brought us the African queen and asphalt uh, jungle uh, who now turned his attentions to Annie. <laughs> I well, still can't believe that John I actually directed it as a Saturday matinee. Yeah, Dude, yeah. I was. I'm surprised you didn't get where I was going for Saturday. I've, I'm of course gonna. Put oh, in, I know where you are. I'm gonna you're a in, big fan of the offer. I was gonna, yeah, Al Ruddy's uh, re- triumphant return to movie theaters with 1982's Megaforce, which, thanks to this podcast, I watched for the first time last week. What I did you think? To, I could not believe what I was freaking watching. That movie is absolutely bonkers. That is the correct response. Wow. I mean, I, I, from the mind of the Saturday matinee. Oh my God. It's so goofy. And you just got ruddied. Wow. And, and, you know, uh, that, that line that was in the trailer, you know, this, what, heroes. Heroes, only the good guys, guys w- w- only the good guys win the 80s. Even no, in the 80s. Even, even the 80s. The good, good guys always win, even in even the 80s. Even in the 80s. It was and a line. Deeds, not words. It was a line so great that they used it twice. They at the in the in the end credits, they brought it back. They had him say it again at the end. Yeah. And that hair uh and the, the his performance is so eccentric and weird and those really tight, inappropriately tight <laughs> the disco, outfits the they're Xanadu, all wearing. The Xanadu wow. outfits. Because and that, the wheel that, uh, always turns. That the movie is nuts. It's nuts. It's amazing it got made. Well, Mattel, yeah. uh, Mattel Toys did the wardrobe and and built the vehicles because they thought they were going to sell a ton of these things. They thought this would be the greatest toy line of all time, <laughs> Mega Mega Force. And of course, it was directed by Hal Needham. This well, the you know, in a, in a way, it kind of predates GI Joe, mm-hmm. uh, which came out a couple years later. And no, GI Joe came out in eighty two. The comic, Did it, the, the the oh okay, well, I mean that the animated series, I guess. Oh yeah, came the out, comic came out, came out in eighty two, and that the toy line is very similar with these kind of paramilitary vehicles and this you know this kind of hidden so organization. Fight for freedom whenever there's trouble. He Man also came out. The toy line, He Man also came out in eighty two. Yeah, I mean, there's so much of all this pop culture stuff that Somebody came out. Somebody should make a movie about it. <laughs> I know, I, but it's like I feel like we have a movie that's almost three hours and it barely covers yeah. all this stuff. I mean, it's just it's heartbreaking. I mean, it's like, and here's like a movie that I loved in '82 that would never make anybody's list because it's it's this documentary called The Atomic Cafe, yeah, and it's just a bunch of old '50s uh, nuclear PS war PSAs yeah. and ducking cover stuff that's strung together, and it's wildly entertaining. Great. Well, and speaking of wildly entertaining documentaries, there's another great one from that year called Burden of Dreams mm-hmm. uh, about the making of the aforementioned Fitzcarraldo. I told you he'd go with that. <laughs> it's a terrific documentary. <laughs> it, 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 it examines the making of this film, and it's it, it, what a production. I mean, it's one of the great making of documentaries of all time. But because it's Saturday, and, you know, we are teenagers or pre-teenagers and they're looking for something to do and a movie to sneak into. And we're thinking to ourselves, self, what I want to see today is a movie um, that will become the foundation upon which a mighty 
uh, cable and streaming service will oh, eventually build itself. Oh my God. But, um, so I would like for Saturday <laughs> to put into contention uh, Don Coscarelli's Beastmaster. Hey, <laughs> HBO. Hey, Beastmaster's on. on. Exactly. <laughs> it's, uh, it's just, it's fascinating. I mean, look, man, he's got like, he's got pet ferrets. And they have like Momo and Popo. It's because he's like five years old. If we're going to do fantasy, fantasy, there's Steve's favorite, the Dark Crystal. Uh, There's no one's favorite, the Sorcerer. Steve Krasir's ears are tingling. That's true. He loves the Sword and Sorcerer. He's a big Lee Horsley fan. But there's also Tron. The computer, an extension of the human intellect. The ENCOM 511, center of the most calculating intelligence on Earth. Programmed by Master Control to survive by all means. Soon, the ultimate tool will become the ultimate enemy. I still do not understand why you want to break into the system. Because, man, somewhere in one of these memories is the evidence. Hey, 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 it's the big master control program everybody's been talking about. Kevin Flynn, computer genius. (laughs) Taken prisoner and held captive within the digital world of the computer itself. Trapped inside an electronic arena where love and escape do not compute. Did we did we pick it last week for Jeff Bridges week? We did not. No. Yeah, we did not. Well, look, I mean, you know what? We haven't talked about this yet, but I think you know for Saturday in the sweet spot, we got to go with Star Trek Two: The Wrath of Khan. I I was going to suggest that for Sunday because it actually was a ABC Sunday night movie. That's right. Okay, that's a bit of a stretch. I kind of feel like Saturday's the big night. Happened. (laughs) I mean, yeah, it was, but so were a lot of these films. I kind of like Tron for Saturday. We picked it for video game week like three years ago. Oh, yeah. So it's back in it's it's back, baby. Because Tron Uh, fights for the users. 
He does. Wherever huh. there's trouble. And yeah. it was the year oh. of the computer. <laughs> That's true. The computer's <laughs> man of the year. You know, and I just rewatched the movie the other night and, uh, you know, it, it holds up well. I mean, it's a, it's a really kind of an audacious movie that's, you know, pioneering a lot of technology that, uh, you know, virtual sets and uh, virtual characters in some it small regards. It is probably the best movie about computers ever made by people who had no idea what computers were. <laughs> <laughs> that's the best description of that movie I've ever Other heard. Other than Electric Dreams. We interviewed Steve Lisberger for four hours. I like what you said better. <laughs> that's great and, and you know it stars jeff bridges who at the time was coming off two oscar nominations yeah. at least you know both for uh, thunderbolt and lightfoot and what last was he doing show. man <laughs> and this is you know he's such a charming appealing actor and he's yeah. like yeah i'm gonna star in this movie about going to the computer man and if we put this grid. movie in on saturday with jeff bridges and we had a jeff bridges week it ties the whole room together <laughs> You know, or we could just call it Warner Brothers Weeks, the films of David Warner. And uh, and David Warner is so great as uh, as the MCP. Yeah. He's so sinister. And this is coming off Time Bandits in 81. Star Trek 5, and, Time and Bandits. Then, and he's just, he's, he's great. Time. Look, I'm good with Star Tron. I'm good with Tron for, for, for Saturday. But I, I, I mean, I, I feel like, well, That's you know what, though? I, can it be the Saturday matinee? And then we do Fast Time Saturday night and Star Trek 2 Sunday? I think oh, sure, that, I think that's a good uh, that's a good way of sneaking yeah. another movie. I think that's good. <laughs> I think that's good because uh, you know I you want know, to see kids. as many movies as possible on the weekend. So. Yeah, yeah, I, I think so, and I think that's a good mix because, like, for kids, we see Tron in the afternoon, and, so and then the you parents go, to go Tron, out. and then you sneak in to Fast Times at Richmond. Exactly <laughs> right because so there was no assigned good. seating. Yeah, so you would see you buy the PG ticket, you'd see Tron, and then you go out to the get some popcorn. You know, and then go into the Fast Times Theater. Nobody would be checking your and tickets. And you walk backwards, so they think That's that right. you're walking They think out. you're walking back in time. Yeah. Well, and, and of course, you know, as teenagers, it satisfies one of the other primary reasons to go to a movie like that. E.B. Cates. <laughs> <laughs> Boobies. Yeah. And, you know, we, we kind of skipped over Porky's, uh, which... Uh, uh, they said that's 1981. <laughs> yeah. No, it says it's on IMDb, it says 81. It was not released till 82. Sometimes because if a film is test screened or at a festival or something, oh, okay. IMDb festival. gets around. It's like, for instance, Liquid Sky, which it says 82. It played the Seattle Film Festival, but didn't actually come out till 83. Yes. So, uh, yeah. So yes, it, Porky's was released in Porky's March. Porky's was 82. Okay. March yeah, 82. Okay. But by the way, Porky's, it is, it's, it's easy to go. Oh, Porky's was like a, a, you know, it's a, you know, sexploitation comedy. And yes, that's true. Except that, it's a lot smarter than that. Um, Bob Not Clark, that of all people, directed that film. Yeah. Um, and it is, uh, it, it's, it's a lot more interesting um, than you would imagine. I mean, first of all, it deals pretty specifically and explicitly with, um, with, with domestic abuse um, and, with, uh, and with, you know, just this sort of abuse uh, that, that kids will suffer at the hands of their parents. It deals uh, with, with, with racism, with anti-Semitism, um, with all of those things are there and they're very present. Um, and they inform like the friendships uh, between those boys. And I, I think a lot of the reputation that that movie has, aside from a mole and a, a lot of that stuff, um, is because of 
Porky's to the next day and Porky's Revenge. And but I'd just, like to save it for next season when we do films they never make today week. Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> Bob Clark week, but like just makes a lot of really kooky ass films. But a Porky's better film than you than you than you imagine. Um, oh, but I would not I be agree, my suggestion this week. Fast Times is, is art. Oh, yeah, Porky's yeah, 100%. Yeah, you know, and and Fast Times is great, and there's so many comedies because, of course, again, we didn't pick Forty Eight Hours, we didn't pick Night Shift with Michael Keaton and Henry Winkler, which is a hoot. Yeah. You know, Diner, I love my favorite year. You know, Richard Benjamin's comedy with Peter O'Toole is wonderful. I mean, there's so oh, World, Acor- don't wear World, according, World According to Garp. Oh, World According to Garp. There's another movie that people don't talk about that deserves a lot more attention. What a great movie! Starring Robin Unlike Williams, Airplane Two, the sequel. <laughs> Even though it had William Shatner in it. Well, that's the only part that's worth watching. Yeah. Is the last 10 minutes with Shatner because he's funny. Well, and the and the first two minutes that had the Enterprise in it. Yeah. No, it's at the <laughs> end. The Enterprise at the end when he looks through the periscope and sees the Enterprise. First time oh, right. the original no, Enterprise was on the big screen. That's that's true. But I, yeah. what I meant was that the uh, Battlestar Galactica opening. Oh, was, yeah. Yeah. I know that they threw out the score and used the <laughs> yeah. Battlestar Galactica score for yeah. Noah. Apparent reason, right. but it was the only thing that made it bearable to watch. Right. <laughs> yeah, I know that was weird, um, but yeah, I think Fast Times would be a great pick. Yeah. Um, and and then so we have Tron in the afternoon. We sneak Tron into Fast in Times at night, and then on Sunday, Sunday Captain Star Kirk Trek and the crew of the Enterprise is back. The, the one that re- one that restarted oh, it all. <laughs> <laughs> to confront his greatest adversary, the genetically enhanced supervillain, God. At the end of the universe lies the beginning, beginning of vengeance. Beyond the darkness, beyond the human evolution, is Khan, a genetically superior tyrant, exiled to a barren planet, banished by a starship commander he is destined to destroy, left for dead. He has survived. I'll chase him round the moons of Nibia and round the Antares maelstrom and round Perdition's flames before I give him up. There she is. to go on hurting you. I shall leave you as you left me, marooned for all eternity, buried alive, buried alive. Sean! Sean! At the end of the universe lies the beginning of vengeance. Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. Opens at a theater near you, June fourth. I mean, it's a film that uh, it changed. It certainly changed Star Trek. It, it 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 brought in a whole new fandom. 
it's the way a lot of people look at Star Trek now, yeah. for better or for worse. Yeah. But you know, Nick, what Nick Meyer did was an incredible uh, uh, achievement because I and and I, I think we all the one the one thing that you cannot at all quibble with is the fact that you know Hart Ben and Nick Meyer knew nothing about Star Trek, but boy, they sure educated themselves on it. Yeah, and they, they made uh, a love letter to Star Trek. They understood what made things work aboard a starship. And um, and it sure does. At the far reaches of the universe, a battle is about to begin. A battle between good and evil, between a warrior and a madman, between the unbelievable power of the starship Enterprise and the wrath of Khan. Young doctors in love. <laughs> Wait, John Young's other movie of 1982. <laughs> <laughs> Just, just so you folks know, I wasn't reading that from anywhere. Oh, we know. Oh, we we know. know you were. You're it you. was in my mind. You're you. there for all eternity in the center of a dead skull. I mean, how many times <laughs> have we watched Star Trek 2? I, I, oh, I my mean, God. I, it's got to be in the, at least no, it, three. It, it, and three, it really did in, kind in of the remake the formula in a way. I mean, it's a sequel to an episode of the original series, and yeah. yet it's so, so much more than that. And it's this meditation on aging and... Uh, you know, and, and and decisions and regrets. And, you know, it's just a wonderfully emotional movie in, in addition to being a great suspenseful action movie. A great submarine movie, like yeah. The Enemy Below, or, you know, we hadn't had one of these in a while. Run yeah. Silent, Run Deep, yeah. Bounce of Terror. We hadn't yeah. had them in a long time, nor would we again. And uh, so it was really amazing what, you know, Nick Meyer did. I mean, it um, kind of militarized Star Trek in a way that mm -hmm. maybe wasn't totally true to the initial concept, uh, and, it, and it's become a, a, an element of Star Trek ever since. Well, I think that, one, once you name a character Captain Kirk, that kind yeah. of militarizes it. Yeah, and I think once you've done Balance of Terror, you're there. Yeah. <laughs> Um, well, I, I think there's a, there's a lot of sort of uh, retroactive sort of looking back at that and pretending that the Star Trek, the original series, was like was something that it wasn't. No. Um, they're kind of believing a lot of... It was of, cops in space. It was. It was totally cops in space. Well, at least it, he it, didn't call people by their first names on that's the bridge. Right. <laughs> so, um... But, I'm, I'm all for bringing Khan into Sunday. Yes, Khan. Sunday. Khan! I'm delighted. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's a good way to finish off the week because it was just this... this I think it was a surprise for people because whether you love Star Trek The Motion Picture or not, Star Trek II was so different mm -hmm. and so much fun, you know, and so unexpected and so much like, you know, the 80th episode of the original series. You know, Motion Picture was a movie, yeah. right? Star Trek II was like the 80th episode of the TV Absolutely. series, which wasn't a bad thing. No, not no. at all. It was the you second two-part episode. No, but it didn't have Clubber Lang in it. <laughs> but it had well, the next best thing. We don't best know. Thing. That. We don't um, know. He could have been Who in would there. Who would win in a fight? Connor or Clubber Lang? That's a good question. That's for Starship Smackdown. Who right. would win? Clubber <laughs> Lang? What is stronger, Clubber Lang or Khan? Wow. Yeah. And 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 uh, we want to remind you, you should come see us at Starship Smackdown, our panel at Comic Con. Uh, we close out Comic Con on Sunday afternoon. And this year, for the first time ever, we'll be pitting good against evil to see what is stronger. So um should be very interesting. Or not, but it should be. I mean, we have It'll be interesting plans. for us, and that's all that counts. That's right. <laughs> as long as we're having fun, 
That's what matters. Yes. You know who else had two movies that year? Clint Eastwood, Honky Tonk Man, and 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 Firefox. Oh yeah. Honky and you know we didn't even talk about Coppola's One from the Heart, which was a, a really ambitious failure. Yeah. Yeah. Or Trauma uh, Studios stuck on you. And you know it's so funny we didn't even mention that the Oscar winning uh, Gandhi because Gandhi. frankly nobody gives it. I'm right. not about I mean, Gandhi, but about the movie. It's a it's a good movie, but it's not Fine. one that that, Gandhi, that made much of an but impact. Not forgotten. Yeah. But there's a, another documentary that we did t- mention, uh, Koyana Scotsy. Uh, oh, which yes. had a brilliant Philip Glass score. Uh, mm-hmm. And it was a, a terrific movie, if you've never seen that. Uh, all three movies in that trilogy are just Not to be confused with the documentary with James Doohan, Koyana Scott. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, we, we could go on and sing the praises this year for a long time. But quite honestly, I think we spent enough time and... Darren has a plane to catch. So <laughs> it, let's go back and look at the films we picked for the supersized week of the 430 movie, season five, season finale, starting with Monday, Steve Melching. Monday, Harrison Ford stars in Ridley Scott's uh, film from 2019, Blade Runner. On Tuesday, it's Darren Dockerman. On Tuesday, Steven Spielberg's amazing film about kids and a rubber puppet, E.T. The ex- you just ruined it. <laughs> Wednesday, Ashley Edward Miller with his most mainstream pick yet. They're here. Toby Hooper, nay, uh, Steven Spielberg's Poltergeist. On Thursday, John Shea is missing in Costa Garvis's nail-biting political thriller. And on Friday, it's up there where it belongs, <laughs> Officer and a Gentleman, Taylor Hackford's romantic drama starring an Academy Award-winning Lou Gossett Jr. For the Saturday matinee, we're going into the computer. Computer? The, we're going the into the, the computer. Year. For into the man of the year, (laughs) (laughs) the man who fights for the inside. Plus, the the computer's pronouns are it. Okay, so (laughs) it's not a him or a she. Okay, and then uh, on uh, on Saturday night, it's off to the drive-in to see Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Amy Heckerling's wonderful teen comedy that uh, Entertainment Weekly called the Citizen Kane of teen exploitation movies. That wasn't Scott Mance. It was Entertainment Weekly. (laughs) And wrapping wrapping things up on Sunday, at the end of the universe lies the beginning of vengeance. Star Trek, the undiscovered country. Oh, wait. Star Trek, the vengeance (laughs) vengeance of Khan. Wait, Star Trek, the wrath of Khan. (laughs) And speaking of the wrath of Khan, here's an exciting sneak preview from our upcoming documentary on the films of 1982. We'll be right back after this quick clip. I give John Carpenter a lot of credit for having some mix, uh, some cultural, ethnic, racial mix in that film in 1982. There weren't a lot of characters as a geek or black geek to get excited about. All of a sudden, 1982, we've got the thing, T.K. Carter. Maybe we had war with Norway. With Keith David, his first movie role, incredible. I went from Midsummer Night's Dream to my speech teacher training. Good American speech for the theater. And then when I got the script, I I, I was like, oh my goodness. I hope that I can, you know, drop this training long enough so I'm not saying, you motherfucker, you know. (laughs) 
Because, you know, I had all those classic wonderful lines. Now how's this motherfucker wake up after thousands of years in the ice? Do you believe any of this voodoo bullshit, you know? And then... <laughs> I just cannot believe any of this voodoo bullshit. One thing that is still distinctive to this day, the special effects on the thing was not CGI. Today, you look at that stuff and you go, really, wow, fabulous. Possibly the best practical special effects because of Rob Bottin, who designed the way the characters transformed into the monsters. It was masterful. There was a lot of yin and yang going on finishing the effects. There were a lot of things that happened during photography, which we'd have to say, no, we're gonna figure that out in editorial and we need an insert of this or we need an insert of that. So we carried a lot of stuff into post-production. When they shot the film, most of the Rob Bottin stuff did not happen on set. There's no way you could ever do that again. There's no way you could ever get permission for an artist to try to figure out the most important visual element of your movie after you've already shot your film. There's never been anything like it. So the splitting head, they had prepared this for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. And of course it didn't work the first time it was all screwed up. So now we're gonna, we're gonna stay there all night. And I mean, we started at, I don't know, like two o'clock in the afternoon or something like this. And we just kept working around the clock. Palmer is transformed into the monster Kurt Russell finally gets the flamethrower working, ignites this monster, and that was a real burn. Tony Caesar, stuntman, that was his specialty. They had to do it twice. On camera, you could see that the split head was a mask, and he had another black mask. John was like, well, we have to do it again. So, <laughs> he did it again! They lit this cat up! <laughs> I was standing in the catwalk, I was 30 feet up there, and the flame was in my face. I could feel the heat. They weren't gonna get it wrong a second time. John Carpenter's The Thing changed the world in how stories were told, a downbeat ending that wasn't popular before those days. You the only one who made it? Not the only one. Did you kill it? Where were you, Charles? Not only is it downbeat, but we don't even know the conclusion of that story. Why don't we just wait here for a little while? See what happens. John and I had gone on vacation when he finished the film. And when we came back, we landed in Miami and E.T. was on the cover of one of the national magazines. And John looked at it and he said, well, that's it for the thing. It was such a gut shot when E.T. came out and we came out and it was like, okay, here's what can really be great about people coming in from outer space and here's what can really be shitty. We just got completely blown off. Everybody thought The Thing was going to be a smash, and it turned out that The Thing was not successful at all at the box office. If it had come out in October or November, it would have immediately had another kind of credibility. I don't know what the marketing guy got for marketing our movie, but he should have got life. It was such a bad marketing idea. The next film, The Thing, has already caused a lot of talk before it has opened. About two weeks ago, something very unusual happened to me. I began getting postcards at my newspaper office from <laughs> readers telling me that John Carpenter's new movie, I guess they'd seen it in a preview, was one of the most disgusting films ever made. Well, 
those postcard writers certainly were right about one thing. <laughs> I also remember critics talking about, oh, it's it's so horrible. You can't take your kids. Don't take your kids. It's a horror movie. What a stupid thing to say. I would call this the barf bag movie of July. The story is totally implausible, and the movie just basically is an excuse for this very gruesome and repellent creature to gross us out. It is okay. the most nauseating thing I've ever seen on a movie screen. Okay, we're back. Wow, action packed. That, that was crazy. <laughs> I, I can't, I can't I can't wait for you guys to see sometimes. the movie. I can't wait for you guys to see the film. I'm very I'm very I'm excited looking about forward it. to it. Very very you know what? It's it. it's clear it's almost three hours and it really should be it should be a lot longer because we scratched the surface of so much that really requires more. But I'm I'm very proud of it. I think there's some great interviews and great footage we've unearthed and calling attention. So it's it's really exciting. Um but I'm really excited about this week we just we just programmed for the 4.30 movie. Um, before we uh, end our uh, season finale of season five, is there uh, anything you want to share with the audience before we return in the fall with our next season? Steve? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> well, guys, it's, it's, been a, it's been a real pleasure. This is always a ton of fun. I think we've, 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 we've um, pointed out some really remarkable films this season. And I think the podcast has uh, has grown in uh, enjoyment for certainly us and uh, hopefully for the listeners as well. Well, like I said, I mean, wonderful upward trajectory. Podcast always did well, but it's it's doing extremely well, and we continue to um, you know see uh, a you know great improvement in the um, in the number of downloads. And I hope uh, for those of you who would prefer to watch us, you're checking us out on the free Electric Now app where you can watch the 4.30 movie with uh, Stephen, Ashley, Darren, and myself. And of course, you can continue the conversation during the off-season on social media, on uh, 4.30 Movie Podcast, on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And look for uh, more news on the um, uh, 1982 Greatest Geek Year documentary at 1982 Movies on Twitter and Instagram. And uh, of course, we hope we'll see most of you at... Um, Comic-Con next week. Except if you're listening you. to this in two weeks, then you're out of luck uh, <laughs> because you'll have missed it. So unless you have a time traveling DeLorean, you're screwed. Um, and of course, a very special thanks to everyone who made the show possible this year. The great Mark Rivera, who has uh, done such a great job making it sound so great during the uh, pandemic. Uh, obviously, Bill Ritter, who was there from the beginning and continues to look out for us, our guardian angel and uh, producer and executive sound mixer. Peter Holmstrom, our producer, who has pulled all these wonderful clips and trailers and um, been Pull a, a big clips. booster. Pull the <laughs> that was not 1982. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Natalie Miscali, and of course, Dean Devlin, um, who, uh, who, the one who started it all. <laughs> and, um, so thank you, Dean. And thank you to our audience for being so supportive and indulgent of all this craziness. We really appreciate it. Um, I also want to thank my, my wife, my wonderful wife, Naomi, who listens every week and does not hesitate to tell me what she thinks of our picks. Um, <laughs> she's a big fan of Steve, Ashley, and Darren. No, oh. <laughs> I'm, kidding. I'm kidding. She is one of our biggest fans. And of course, a uh, shout out to her sister, Susan, who also is a huge fan of the 4-3 movie. And it's always great to get that feedback um, from um, people who I'm big fans of. So uh, there you go. Um, so until next season, when Steve, Ashley, Darren, and myself return with cousin Oliver. season six <laughs> with cousin Oliver. 
Eyewitness News starts now. This show is produced by Dean Devlin and Mark A. Altman and is an Electric Surge Network production.